Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Today we have a story that shatters the illusion most of us have of safety within our own homes. A story of a perfectly unassuming young family, viciously murdered in their own home for seemingly no reason. Did they sense something was coming for them? Is there any truth to the rumors that plagued this small Illinois town after the entire Dardeen family was murdered? Russell Keith Dardeen and Ruby Elaine Dardeen, who both preferred their middle names Keith and Elaine, grew up in Illinois. These two had never strayed far from home, and they met and fell in love at a young age. They were married by the time they turned 22 in the summer of 1979. They were deeply in love, and everything was falling into place for the young couple. In July of 1984, they welcomed a baby boy to their family, and they named him Peter. They were a perfectly normal family, quiet, friendly, and so happy and full of love. Keith was even a true crime enthusiast, just like us. He shared his interest in true crime with his mother, and they loved spending time discussing potential theories. Yes, we love our fellow true crime lovers. We do. I mean, I know many people aren't into like dark news podcasts or shows, but to come across someone who loves it just as much as you do is gold. I mean, do you remember how excited both of us were to find out that we had that in common? Oh, yes, girl. We were so excited. We started a podcast three months later. (laughs) (laughs) So about two years after their son was born, they were struggling a little financially due to the difficulty in finding a steady job where they lived. When Keith found a job as a water treatment plant operator in Ina, Illinois, it felt like a long overdue win. Elaine was also able to get a secretary job in the same town, so they packed up and moved to Ina. They didn't really care for the small town, but they had a family to support and were grateful for the job opportunities. And when I say small, I mean small. In the late 80s, when they lived there, the town had a population of less than 500 people. Uh, Okay, I grew up in a small town, but wow, that is small. I'm pretty sure 500 people was the number of students in my high school back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I've come across churches with more than 500 members, and I'm sure everyone knew everyone in that town. Of course. They bought a mobile home and became active members of the local church. By 1987, they were expecting their second baby, who they planned to name Ian or Casey once it was born. With another baby coming, Keith started expressing concerns over the rising crime rates in the area. He became so overprotective of his family that one night, a woman knocked on his door asking to use their phone, and he refused to let her in. Now, to be fair, there had been 15 homicides in a two-year period in that county alone. 15 people is 3% of the population of Ina murdered in only two years. In such a small town, I expect that having that many murders involving people you probably know would make me nervous, too. I mean, the killer can easily be someone that you see every day in a community that small. Maybe they should have just moved, you know? Yeah. In early November, Keith told his mother that Ina was not a good place to raise children and that they were going to move back to his hometown of Mount Carmel, Illinois. He went as far as saying that they would move even if he couldn't find a new job first. They decided a trip to visit Elaine's family would be good for them, so on November 14th of 1987, they made the drive about an hour east and spent the night with her parents. They got back home late on the night of the 15th, so Elaine waited until the morning of the 16th to call her family and let them know that they got home safely. 
This call was the last time anyone would talk to the Dardine family. That Monday, on November 16th, co-workers were a little surprised that Keith didn't stop in to pick up his paycheck. But no one was overly concerned because Keith wasn't scheduled to work until Wednesday, and they figured that he would just pick up his check then. When Keith didn't show up on Wednesday morning for work, everyone started to worry. It was so unlike him. Keith was dependable to a fault and would never miss work. His supervisor tried calling repeatedly, but no one answered. The supervisor even drove out to the house, but no one answered the door. Good for his co-workers. They didn't waste any time making assumptions on why he was late to work. They just immediately started looking for him. I mean, missing work is one thing, but it's very odd for someone that needs money to skip out on their paycheck, you know? True. At this point, his co-workers knew that something was wrong, so they called his parents to see if they knew where Keith was. Keith's parents had no idea what was going on, but they jumped into action. Don, Keith's dad, grabbed the spare key that he had to their house and drove the hour to Ina, while Keith's mom, Joanne, called the police and requested that they do a wellness check. Police waited for Don to arrive with a spare key, and the first thing everyone noticed was that Keith's car was not in the driveway. Don let the police into the trailer. They didn't know what to expect, but what they actually found was beyond what they could have ever imagined. He missed one day of work, and they called his parents. I don't think most people would go that far for their coworkers. I wouldn't, but it was such a small, close-knit community. I can see why that could be, like, alarming to them, you know? That's true. Steph will tell us more after this short break. Elaine and little Peter had been viciously beaten with a baseball bat that had been a gift for Peter's third birthday. Worst of all, it looked like Elaine had gone into labor during the attack, and once the baby girl was born, the monster beat the baby to death with the bat as well. Whoever had done this had taken their time to carefully stage the scene. 30-year-old Elaine, the newborn baby, and 3-year-old Peter had been neatly tucked into Keith and Elaine's bed. Only Elaine had been tied and gagged first. There were rumors around town that she had been raped, but no evidence of that was ever released by police. That's so weird that he tucked them into bed. It kind of makes me question if the killer felt some remorse after the murders. It's definitely weird, and that's totally possible. Keith, however, was suspiciously missing from the gruesome scene. Police from all over the county were called in to start a manhunt to find him, but not out of concern for his safety. He was their number one suspect. Typically, in many cases, we have seen the police think it's the husband, but it also doesn't help that he wasn't there. For sure. When the wife and children end up dead, the husband is gone. Of course, he's going to be the number one suspect. At least he was, until they found his car about 11 miles south, just over the county line. His car was parked outside of a police station of all places. The interior of the car was covered in blood, and Keith was not with it. Police started to question whether Keith was the killer or actually another victim. It was confirmed when his body was found by hunters on November 19th in a field about a mile from the Dardine home. I'm starting to feel like Keith was the possible target and his family was collateral damage. It really looks that way. His murder was overkill for sure. I mean, yeah, all the murders in this case were. But I'm curious to know, did he get beat to death with a bat too? No, his cause of death was completely different. Keith had been shot in the head three times and his genitals had been cut off post-mortem. His being singled out and led away from the home, in addition to the horrific genital mutilation, led police to believe, just like you, Shan, that this had been a very personal attack, and Keith had clearly been the target. 
Oh, yeah. Okay, see, that makes total sense. The fact that they cut off his genitals sounds like they were punishing him, and it was definitely personal. Yeah, no one goes that far for no reason. So all these murders took place on the same day, right? Yeah, so the estimated time of death was sometime between the night of the 17th and 6 a.m. the morning of the 18th, but all died within an hour of each other. What we don't know is what happened between that last call made the morning of the 16th and their time of death. That's 48 hours unaccounted for when no one saw or heard from anyone in the Dardine family. A lot can happen in two days, but it also gives the murderer plenty of time to escape. Do you think they were held hostage all that time? I mean, that's possible, but did they find anything at the crime scene? Not exactly. The killer took their time cleaning up and staging the scene very carefully. Almost no evidence was left behind, and what was left only caused more confusion. There were no fingerprints or DNA left behind, no evidence of an intruder at all, really. The only things out of place was one marijuana joint which friends and family swear could not have been Keith and Elaine's, and there was nothing in their blood to suggest that it was theirs. And then there was the back door. It had been left open, which police suspected could have been how the intruder got into the house, but I think the killer could have just left it open on their way out as well. I just wish that they had the technology to test the joint for DNA. I mean, did this guy really smoke after mass murdering a whole family? Uh, Yeah, great question, Sham. You know what? I take back the thought of this guy being remorseful. Maybe he was just pure evil because this seems completely unnecessary and random. Like, what was this guy's deal? Yeah, the motive was the question on everybody's mind. No matter how deep the police dug, they just couldn't find a motive for this crime. There was absolutely no evidence of drugs, gambling, or any serious money issues within the Dardine family. They didn't even have any affairs or crazy exes or anything either. They were squeaky clean. There was no sign that it had been a robbery because nothing was taken. There was even jewelry and cash lying around the house that wasn't touched. It's even hard to imagine that they might have helped the wrong person because, as Sham mentioned before, Keith had been extremely paranoid about the rising crime in the area and never would have let a stranger into their home. That makes me question, like, was he paranoid because of the rising crime rate or was he hiding something? I hadn't really thought about that. It's totally possible that he had secrets so well hidden the police just didn't find any of it out. Like, did he owe someone money? Did he have any unknown enemies? Did they move to this small town for a job or were they running from someone? All great questions. But unfortunately, we may never know. The case went cold with no apparent motive and no suspects. But rumors flew through that small town anyway. The joint found in the house fueled speculation that maybe someone was trying to get Keith to sell drugs for them and he refused. But that was dismissed by police and family of the Dardines. Many people believed and still believe that either Keith or Elaine was having an affair that ended badly and the murders had just been revenge but no evidence of an affair was ever discovered. Okay, first off, just because you smoke weed, it doesn't make you a drug dealer. (laughs) And second, they were having an affair in a town of 500 people and no one noticed or got caught. That is a skill if I've ever seen one. (laughs) Right? Not likely. I hope they did some digging because I'm not buying that affair theory. So get this. When Keith's body was found, police started asking friends and family if Keith might have been gay. Joanne, Keith's mom, recalled detectives wanted to know if her son was gay because of suspicions that his severed genitals might suggest homosexual overtones. But she was adamant that he was not. 
Some suggested that because the trailer was visible from two different highways, maybe a random passerby saw the for sale sign and took it as an invitation. When there's no real evidence, no theories are off the table from the rumor mill. Well, that all sounds like a stretch and highly unlikely in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, people were grasping at straws on those theories. Yeah. The wildest speculation came from the fear of the occult spreading like wildfire through America at that time. People in Ina started to freak out that this murder may have been a satanic ritual, especially due to the birth and depraved murder of Casey, who was only minutes old when she was beaten to death. And, of course, the genital mutilation of Keith. Town folks gossiped that the only explanation was Satan worshippers sacrificing this family to the devil. But law enforcement quickly ruled it out as a possibility. Ah, the satanic panic of the 80s. So listen up, conjurers. At its core, satanic ritual claims relied on overzealous law enforcement, unsubstantiated statements from children, and above all, aggressive and suggestive interrogation by therapists and prosecutors. In the 70s, a group of men from Southern California stepped into the limelight, writing books and giving interviews that have all now been discredited as entirely fabricated. They claimed to have spent years in intense satanic worship, even serving as high priests in a satanic cult. All of this was proven to be untrue, and all of these men were linked to the emerging fundamentalist Christian right political group. The Christian movement wasn't alone in its occult-fearing mongering. The media played a huge role in stoking the public's fear and fueling misconceptions surrounding occult practices. By the mid-80s, a wave of seminars, tutorials, and educational videos for authorities and the public were sweeping the nation. These classes were taught mostly by other cops, therapists, preachers, and born-again Christians claiming to be former higher priests of unspeakably sadistic cults. But none of this ever resulted in any evidence that such sadistic ritual torture cults existed. Even so, people were accused and imprisoned for things that never even happened. These innocent people were caught up in what was essentially a 20th century witch hunt. So there was one credible suspect for these murders that surfaced over a decade later. In 2000, there was a huge break in the case when a known serial killer who was on death row in Del Rio, Texas, confessed to the murder of the Dardeen family. Tommy Sells, also known as the cross-country killer, would hitchhike across America and get jobs as a carnival worker, all while sexually assaulting and then killing women he met along the way. At first, everyone was excited. A known murderer who liked to kill just for the pleasure of killing seemed possible, even if he had no connection to the family. That does seem promising because the Dardines were living between two highways and it would be easy to believe that they could be an easy random target. Yeah, and it's always tempting to believe a confession. But we and our fellow conjurers all know it's never that simple and sometimes criminals make false confessions for attention. Exactly. And he confessed to the Dardine family murder three times, but his story kept changing. And he wasn't able to give any details not released to the media. First, he claimed he met Keith at a pool hall and Keith invited him back to the trailer for dinner, which doesn't sound much like the Keith you described earlier. Then he changed his story, saying that he met Keith at a truck stop and Keith invited him to have a threesome with him and his pregnant wife. The detectives just couldn't see it happening that way, not knowing Keith the way that they had come to know him. In 2014, Texas executed Tommy Sells, leaving investigators torn over his involvement in the Dardine case. 
but they were unable to rule him out or close the case. Ugh, okay. We both know how many murderous criminals have given confessions in other cases and really just wanted some attention. And it always seems to be the ones on death row. I know, right? False confessions can really mess up a case and lead it in the wrong direction. It's really not fair to the loved ones of the victims either. Not at all. This is still an active case. In 2015, disturbing messages about the murders were found written on a wall of a house hidden under some old wallpaper, but all police will release is that it didn't produce any new leads. The police are hoping to retest the old evidence for DNA using today's modern technology, but before they can do that, they have to track down and confirm the record of custody for all of the evidence over the years. Joanne Dardine has been a consistent voice in public and to law enforcement since the 1987 murders of her son Keith and his young family, and she has no intention of stopping. Detective Captain Scott Burge took over the Dardine cold case investigation and commented there's actually 21 four-inch binders completely full on just this case. Family and friends of Keith and Elaine don't want their story to be forgotten. New leads can still come to light even 30 years later, and they still hold out hope of getting justice. Jefferson County authorities want anyone who thinks they know anything about the 1987 murders of Keith, Elaine, Peter, and baby Casey Dardine to contact their office at 618-244-8004. Joanne Dardine said you can contact her too, and she'll get right on it. Maybe you can even help solve it. Most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP, which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They will never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the Tip Submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 Tips app. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandcodger.com. Research and writing for this case was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Sham, what is our Conjure Tip of the Week? This week, we want to talk about a use for clear quartz that may be a little less known. Most people know clear quartz as a stone that filters energy. You can place it in a central space in your home and it will soak up the negative energy and transmit it out as clean, neutral energy. However, Clear quartz also has very strong powers of protection against anyone who means you harm. Absolutely. In every place I live, I always bury a clear quartz crystal in each of the four corners of my property to create a kind of protection barrier around my entire house. Thanks, Sham. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, Conjurers. Conjurers.